0: Morning, everybody. Today's uh, scripture reading is from Matthew 6, uh, 21 to 27. If you want to look it up, it's one of those passages that for me has tremendous weight. Words from Jesus Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them,
1: Good morning again. It's great to be with you this morning. Uh, I had to laugh this morning as we were worshiping uh, because this is our church. We have to sometimes adjust. The wall is up today. Usually it's not up and we have the full. And people are running around. And then I'm seeing up front the little Mabel. She's dancing. I think she's going to become a drummer. And then Hannah, uh, Aaron, and Katie's little girls coming up to the drums. This is our church, by the way. Uh, you're welcome. Uh, someone once said a few weeks ago to me there should be a, um, a warning or a disclaimer when you come to The Rock you might get pregnant. It's just, it's happening here all the time, you know. (laughs) Sorry, I I don't know if I should have said that. Welcome here this morning. We are continuing, we've been away for a couple of weeks, obviously in Mexico, in this wonderful time together, but we're back in our series called The Desire Wisdom, Because Nothing Else Matters More. It's a series that we, we started about f- maybe four or five weeks before that, and we've been in it for a while, and it's been awesome because we've seen a number of really important things. Number one thing that I think we've seen is this. The kind of wisdom that we're talking about is not the wisdom in this world. It's not the same thing whatsoever. Uh, It's the wisdom from above. It's, It's godly wisdom, not human wisdom. And we've been fooled, quite frankly, in our culture to believe that there is something called human wisdom, wisdom that you can, you can learn through advanced learning, more knowledge. It's been going on for centuries, millennia, in fact. This idea, this Gnostic belief, which is knowledge, that we can just improve ourselves as human beings, get better and better, smarter and smarter, and therefore wise. What we've seen is that's not wisdom. It's not wisdom at all. It's not the same thing at all. What we've seen is is that you can you can have all kinds of letters behind your names, PhDs, you can be the smarty pants of the world, one of the smartest people on the planet. And yet we, I, you, we can all continue to make really bad decisions in our lives, one after the other. And in some cases it just it's like dead ends and it's it's a bad thing and, and but you know, and in some cases it can become literally a train wreck. Because we lack wisdom. We lack the wisdom that comes from God. And so we learned also from King Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes that he made this great statement. It's kind of like it's like rinse and repeat, the cycle just keeps going over and over again. And his famous line was: There's nothing new under the sun. Right? New and improved? Not so much. We just repeat ourselves generation after generation. Century after century, every newborn generation comes into this world and thinks, well, we're smarter than the last group. You watch us. Rinse and repeat. There's nothing new under the sun. I mean, Solomon's own life, he he conducted a 40-year experiment. He was gifted, by the way, in the Old Testament, if you weren't with us early in the series, with the wisdom of God. He asked God, would you give me the wisdom at 19, 20 years of age so that I can lead the people of Israel, be a great king? And God said, good for you for asking for wisdom. Sure, I'll give it to you. And he had it. And he displayed it in the first few years of his kingship. And then he goes, you know what? I'm a pretty smart guy. I think what I'll do now is I'll set aside the wisdom of God and I'll conduct this 40-year experiment, and he does it, and for 40 years he goes around seeking pleasure and happiness to see if it's possible that you can have a happy, successful, and joyful life without God. Well, his conclusion was, yeah, meaningless. Vanity is one of the words that's used in one of the translations, meaning it's actually prideful and vain to think that, he, he said, literally, it's like chasing the wind. It's like trying to grab the wind. And so we've seen all that. We've learned all that in our series. And, and, and we, we've come to this point in the series where what I want to do for the next six weeks before we begin our Advent series in December, which we do every year for Christmas, is I want to take us on a bit of a six-week journey where we see something really interesting. I don't know if you've seen this before, but there's an amazing parallel between the Proverbs of Solomon that he wrote in the Old Testament and the parables of Jesus. I mean, go figure, right? We saw that one instance in his life when he first became a king, Solomon that is, where he displayed the wisdom of God as king, where two women came to him with the decision to be made about whose child it was, and he displays that. And we learn from that passage that King Solomon is a foreshadowing, a picture of King Jesus, who's the better and more perfect Solomon, who does come And he is wisdom incarnate. He is wisdom in the flesh. And so I want to show you today this remarkable parallel. We'll begin today, and we'll do this over the next six weeks, between Proverbs in the Old Testament and the parables of Jesus. I mean, go figure. He is, you know, wisdom in the flesh, incarnate, Son of God, wisdom. Now, in the Proverbs, I don't know if you've studied this, but I have. And for today, I'll just give you a couple of statistics. In the Proverbs... In the ESV translation, which is what we are teaching from out of here at the Rock Church, the word wise is used a total of 56 times, whereas the word fool or foolish is used a total of 71 times. It's almost like the Proverbs are telling us there are way more fools (laughs) than there are wise people, which is true. Actually, in the Hebrew, it's, we don't like translating it in the Bibles because it's insulting, right? And, and the gospel and the word of God sometimes is hard enough, but the proper translation of the Hebrew of the word fool is actually idiot. It's actually idiot. I'm sure none of you have ever called somebody that in the past, right? The parables, on the other hand, of course, are, are called... One of the pithy things that people say about the parables, many have said they are an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. It's true. Uh, It's a good understanding of it. They are, but they're so deep. Deep. Jesus taught in parables all the time. It it, it wasn't just because of the religious people who were doubting him. It was because he wanted to show us lessons. He wanted to show us what wisdom actually looked like. He himself speaking wisdom to us. And so the parables are are remarkable. Uh, We see that they're usually contrasting one way with another way. And that's exactly what we've seen so far when it comes to wisdom. There are in, It's always contrasting. There are, there are two paths, right? There is the narrow gate that few will choose. Jesus said just previous to chapter 7 passage that we read this morning and that we're going to look at, there's this narrow gate that very few people will choose, and then there's the wide road, which everybody chooses because it's easy. Now, this narrow gate leads to life, Jesus says, and the wide road leads to destruction. And so again, there's, with our, our look today, we're going to see two paths, two ways, two choices, two destinations, and actually today we're going to learn about two builders, two houses, two foundations, two destinations once again. As Rob intimated when he began to read the passage, it's deep and it's challenging So before we look at the first verse I want to look at today, let me pray again. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much. Uh, Lord Jesus, thank you for these words. I pray right now as we look at what we've already read, what you preached, what you actually said, I pray that you would help me, that you would help us hear from you. We would hear your heart. Because, Lord Jesus, we know you you love us. You came here because you love us. You died for us because you love us. You love the whole world. I and mean, you would you would want all of us to choose you and be saved by you. So I pray that you would bless us in this. In Jesus' worthy name I do pray. Amen. So I want to skip into chapter 7, verse 24. We'll come back to 21 to 23 in a second. First verse says this. Jesus speaking. Recorded by... Matthew. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. So, obviously, full stop, we need to stop at the the phrase, these words… What is he talking about? Well, well, Jesus is at the point at the end of chapter seven where he's concluding literally the greatest sermon of all time. I felt like you know putting on Facebook last night, "Come on out tomorrow to hear the greatest sermon of all time." <laughs> and a few people might have went, "Well, that's pretty arrogant." No, it's Jesus' sermon. Chapter five, six, and seven of Matthew is called the Sermon on the Mount, and it's an amazing, amazing passage. He's talking about what he's been saying for the past maybe two or three hours when he says these words. I promise we won't be that long this morning, maybe half that time. But he, it was a long sermon. You could read it, really, in literally about 11, 12 minutes if you were a good reader, chapters 5, 6, and 7. But we know it's a, it's a condensed version of the whole sermon. It's an amazing picture. Jesus has gotten to the point in his ministry, it's about a year into his three-year, three-and-a-half-year ministry at 30 years of age, 31 years of age, and he's already called his disciples. They've been following following him. Thousands of people have also started following him and for two reasons. One, his amazing teachings. I mean, after verse 27, it actually ends in chapter 7 with this, this statement where it's like, and people were amazed all of those, thousands of people. He was a rock star. There were thousands of people here to listen to this sermon on that day, and they were amazed because he, listen, spoke with authority unlike their Pharisees, their rabbis, and their scribes. They were amazed. So there were thousands of people following, and there were some religious authorities there because they had heard about this guy, This Jewish rabbi, this preacher who had a bunch of disciples following him and thousands of people coming out to hear him, not only because of his authority and great sermons, but also his miracles. I mean, he's raising people from the dead. He's feeding 5,000 at one time. He's healing every disease that's brought into him. It's remarkable. And that's why people are coming out in droves to see him, along with the religious authorities. So the first thing he does, now you've got to think about this, remember, he's full of wisdom from above, he turns everything upside down. From the very moment he begins to preach, back in chapter 5, those who are listening begin to collectively, if you were there, I'm sure you would have seen this, a little bit of a head tilt going, huh? What are you saying? Because here's the first thing he says when he opens his mouth in chapter 5, and, and, and he says these words to those who are, his disciples are closest to him and then all these thousands of people around. He says this, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom of God. Now, this is the beginning of what we call the Beatitudes or the Beautiful Attitudes. And and it's Jesus essentially saying, look, these are the character traits. These are what people will look like who are mine, who have placed their faith in me, who have trusted in me as their personal Savior and are welcomed in to heaven. This will be their actual character traits. Now, the people there, I guarantee you, almost all of the people there at the time, even his disciples would be going, what? Excuse, excuse me? What, what, what are you saying? Huh? Poor? In spirit? Besides, so far, Jesus' followers in the crowd, as I've said, there are also those who were there just for the show. There were, there who were people who were there were going, okay, look, we, we, we heard about that feast a few weeks ago. We were there, in fact. Could you do it again? We'd like some free food. Or we'd like our, our, our ailments healed. They were there for that. And for that reason primarily only. And there, there are also the religious leaders, I said, they now see Jesus as this threat. They, they, they're hoping that He'll say something where they'll be obviously able to say, false teacher, see, He doesn't really know His Bible, or that they will discredit Him in such a way that they can at least get rid of Him, quiet Him. And eventually, as you know, they, they did do that. They and those who were there were there only for what Jesus could do for them. And they probably thought that what he just said is, well, come on, that's just dumb, Jesus. That's not the way the world works. You see, they believe what most people, I think, today believe. Most people believe this today. I believed this for most of my adult life, really, when I was in business. I mean, I believed it. The way to salvation, to self-improvement, to a successful and happy life is in your own hands. And those who work hard and aggressively pursue the lifestyle that they want, come on, carpe diem, seize the day. It's up to you, right? That's the way up, isn't it? Is to struggle, to, to move up. Everything with Jesus is upside down. Everything with Jesus is upside down. He begins his sermon with this The way to heaven, to eternal happiness, happiness is down and then I'll raise you up. You must first humble yourself before God, and that's why Jesus follows with how you and they can actually do that, with the very next verse in chapter 5 when he says this, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So now on first blush, many people would hear that, especially in that crowd today, and maybe some of you would go, okay, wait a second. So so people who cry and are sad… Are the people going to be comforted? Okay, well, that makes a certain amount of sense. But no, that wasn't Jesus' point. And the rabbis would have understood that because it's, it's, it's also Old Testament-leaning teaching. And, and really what, what Jesus is saying there is, no, these are people who've gotten to the point where they recognize that when it comes to achieving God's approval and acceptance, they're bankrupt. They've got nothing to offer Him. They are mourning over the fact that they are broken, sinful people. And, and it's achieving that point, getting to that point, that makes them literally poor in spirit. And that's where that comes from, that teaching comes from. And so Jesus is putting this stuff out there. These guys are listening to this, and well, the religious in that day and maybe even today hear that, and, and they just want to push back. It's natural. You probably, I have for many years, wanted to push back on that kind of thinking. We, we all must think, we think there must be some way, even when we become Christian and we mess up and fall down, that there must be some way for us to be able to earn our salvation or earn God's approval and acceptance again because we've messed up. And his approval. Jesus, like every preacher at that time, I can guarantee you, I mean, one of the things that I'm really glad I have progressive lenses because I can read my notes here and I can see you, right? But Jesus is just like every preacher. Can you imagine? He's on this mountaintop, and the reason why he's there is because he didn't have a mic like I do, but his voice would carry, and he's looking, and he can see the expression in people's faces. And he can see that some of them are beginning to think what most of us have already thought. Come on. There's, there's got to be some way that I can contribute to this, that I can save myself, some way that I can work up to God's approval and acceptance. Jesus sees that, and a few verses later, he says this, which would have rocked and did rock their world. He says, for I tell you this, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter heaven. Okay, like, I can't, I I don't know how I could give you any illustration of how that would have rocked their world and would have been shocking to them at that time. At that point, I I mean, honestly, I would have expected that, like, some of you sometimes might feel like, I'm just going to get up and walk out because I don't want to hear any more of this, but they didn't because he kept going for a couple more chapters and what he had to say. It's shocking. I mean, everyone in that day knew that these guys, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the rabbis in the temple in the Jewish faith, the big hats, the big garments they wore, that they were the most righteous people on the planet. And if you didn't think that, they would tell you they were. They would would tell you that they were those kind of people. Everybody knew that. It was, ter- it was b- bizarre what Jesus is saying. So, Jesus is saying that in order for you or me to be saved, our righteousness before God needs to exceed the most religious person you've ever heard of in your life. Let me give you a name, Mother Teresa, right? Like, you know, she's no longer with us, but she, yeah, she's pretty righteous, holy, giving her life to poor and helping people. Well, in order for you to get into heaven, you need to be more righteous than her. Anybody ready to give up? Worse, the religious dudes hear that and they're going, he's talking about us too. (laughs) This is shocking because basically he says to them, you're not good enough either, guys. This led to them hating him (laughs) and to plotting to kill him in the end. So now Jesus launches into the rest of his sermon, turning everything upside down, everything. He, he goes through a whole list of things. For example, you guys, most of you know the Sermon on the Mount. The, the one special one right at the very beginning is he looks at them all because they, they kind of made the whole idea of adultery kind of common, right? And, and divorce kind of common. And he goes, so, so, so many of you think that what the Ten Commandments says, thou shalt not commit adultery, means is that we're talking about the physical, actual act of having sex, with someone who is not your spouse. And they're probably all sitting there going, yep, that's, that's what it is. And Jesus is going, no, <laughs> it isn't. What God means, what I mean by that is literally this, even thinking about it, wanting to, desiring in your heart, looking at another woman or man with lust in your heart is, in God's eyes, committing adultery. Don't raise your hands, but Anybody? turns everything upside down. So if you read the whole sermon, let me just kind of synthesize it for you this way. I don't think what you're going to end up finding by the time we get to this last passage is that this is some olive-skinned, soft-spoken, mealy-mouthed, love-and-hugs Jesus. This is the Son of God who came to die on the cross for your sins and my sins. He's serious. He's very serious. But he does love you. That's why he's so serious. So the Sermon on the Mount is not about what Gandhi thought it was about. See, Gandhi thought when he read the Sermon on the Mount, he actually built his whole philosophy Uh, of social justice and nonviolence on the Sermon on the Mount. He he proudly told people that. You can read his writings and he said that. But he did say this also. Yeah, the idea that he was somehow divine, yeah, I can't accept that. Well, most of the world can't accept that either. But he built his philosophy on that and it was based on this. His his idea was he's a wise man and these were really good moral teachings. And so no, this Sermon on the Mount ultimately is not about how you can lead a good life and become happy and successful and have a moral life and therefore be accepted by God as a result of your good works. Because listen, here's the truth. Let's be honest with each other. If it, all, if it was, we're all dead. We're done. That's why the gospel is called good news. Some of you may not have heard this before. If you're a rockster, you've heard me say it many times. But it's the one thing that's different about Christianity than every other religion on the planet. Everyone. And that's one of the things that convinced me as a 23-year-old young man not so many years ago, that this is the truth. And that is every other religion of philosophy in the world, every one of them basically says this, you can't work your way up through good works God's approval and acceptance, or to nirvana, to a better level of enlightenment or existence. The gospel says, the scripture says, Jesus Christ says, sorry, it's not true. The gospel says, you cannot do that, and so I will come down to you. I will come to you in the flesh, and I will save you. That's the good news. Timothy Keller puts it really, really well, the difference between religion, which nobody likes, and I understand that, and the gospel. He says this, religion is my identity is built on being a good person. That's what religion is about. That's what most religions and philosophies of this world are. Listen, I'm a good person. I'm as good at least as the next person, right? There's got to be somebody worse than me that doesn't make it. No, the gospel says this, My identity is not built on my record or my performance, but on Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen? So the Sermon on the Mount, uh, let me put it to this way, I think is about two things. It's not about leading a good moral life. There's lots of good moral teaching in it. Jesus expects us to hear these words. But it's about this, two things, heaven and hell. That's what it's about. And Jesus' conclusion to a sermon drives this home in a frightening way, as you've probably already heard. So now look at our first verse again, and now I want you to see the words, because I've highlighted them differently, hears and does. And this might sound strange after we've just been talking about, right? Because Jesus now says, you know, you need to hear, but you also need to do. So, so what's with that, Right? Uh, This might seem strange after we've just been talking, but it's actually the big idea that Jesus has been trying to get at. The big idea that he's trying to get at is that you cannot do these things. You do not have the righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees. You cannot get it apart from me. I have come to atone for your sin, to die for your sin, and give my righteousness to you so that you can live a righteous life life. And so now you can hear and do what I have to say. You can do these things, what I have to say. And so at this point, it's this. You cannot achieve this level of righteousness, Jesus is saying, this level of transformation on your own. You need me. You need my atoning work on your behalf. In other words, if you are truly saved, Christian, hear me. Hear Jesus today. If you're truly saved, you will be transformed. You are being transformed. There are signs of it, or there should be. You will be transformed, and that transformation will, hear this, result in action. It will result in action with a person who does these words that Jesus has been preaching. I love the consistencies in the Gospels. People sometimes ask, why why are there like four Gospels, right? Like there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if you didn't know. I mean, there are these four Gospels. And they all give basically the same account of Jesus's life. Some of them uh, are a little, they don't contradict each other. They're a little different. They come from a different perspective of whether he was king, priest, you know, what, what different characteristics of who Jesus was. But they also highlight things differently. If you read Matthew's Sermon on the Mount, it does sound a lot like, well, do. It does. And we might get the wrong impression. But Luke, the way he summarized it, now you've got to remember he wasn't one of the disciples. He wasn't an apostle. He didn't know Jesus. He collected all this information by interviewing. He was a doctor, a factician, and he collected all this information by interviewing all the disciples after the fact, traveling with the apostle Paul. And, And he synthesizes it, and you can see in it the action side of it. And he says in Luke chapter 6, he writes in verses 27 and on, he says this, but I say to you, this is Jesus again speaking, who here, love. It's the Greek word agape, and it's a verb. <laughs> love your enemies. Excuse me, excuse me, Jesus, love who? <laughs> Upside down or what? Yeah, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Let let me ask you, just really quickly, before we go any further, can you do this on a regular basis every day on your own? Come on. I can't. If you can, come up here. You need to preach, okay? Because we need His Spirit in us to be able to do these things, but that's the whole point. These actions come out of a transformed and renewed life, that has truly given itself over to Jesus. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. These are actions. This is putting it into action, the faith that we have in Christ. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. Gandhi loved that one. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. What's that called? It's called the golden rule, right? Come on. Now, in, in, in human terms, th- this is a hard life to live, isn't it? Would you like to be this kind of person? I, I, I would, but it's a struggle, is it not? It's a really big struggle to be this kind of person. Luke concludes in verses thirty and 37 and 38 with this. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. And again, back to the actions, forgive. You will be forgiven. Give again, in case you missed it. <laughs> Give, and it will be given to you. And then I love the way this ends with these words. It's, it's, it's beautiful. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it, use what? Love. It will be measured back to you. Not necessarily by everybody in this world, but by your Heavenly Father. But by Him. His love will be brought to you. James, the brother of Jesus, said it well, and you all should know this verse because we've done this letter and I've repeated it many times in chapter 1, verse 22. Be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourself. This is not a legalistic statement to kind of whip us into, you know, good behavior. This, this, is, this is to remind us as Christians, this is who we're supposed to be. Not just what we're supposed to do, but who we are supposed to be. So just before this great parable of the two builders, as we've already read this morning, Jesus placed the uber-religious leaders who were there. He puts them in his crosshairs, and look what he says to them. He says, In chapter 7, verse 21, beginning there, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, that's the words in the Greek, kurios, kurios, twice for emphasis, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many, see that word? Many, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do mighty works in your name? every religious Pharisee, scribe, and Sadducee must be sitting there at that point going, he's talking about me. (laughs) He's talking about us. He concludes with, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Leave. He's talking about judgment day. He's talking about the day that they've died and they're standing before him and he's going, door number two. Leave. Leave. Notice they didn't just hear what he was preaching. They say the words, Lord, Lord. So at first, it's like they're showing respect, right? They're showing, and so the people around, I mean, that Jesus would assume, yeah, well, they're being respectful to you, and they are. But there's a few key words there, and, and the big key word is, did we not? You see, they thought they could stand before Jesus on Judgment Day, and they could say, wait a second, we see door number two is open over there, um, didn't we do really good things? Didn't we do works? Many works? Ultimately, and in your name, by the way, in your name, in your name, you know, Jesus' response to them, although we don't read it here, is clear. Uh, These are leaders. (laughs) These are religious leaders. In our day-to-day, these are, in some cases, people with the biggest podcast listener group In North America. These are people who heal the sick. These are health, wealth, and prosperity preachers. These are could be any pastor. Anywhere. It's scary what Jesus says. He says that they are many who will say, Did we not do? And his response will be: as they stand before him, I don't know you. My dad once asked me many years ago before he passed away, because I had to have the conversation with him. And fortunately, I did. <laughs> um, I asked him, I said, Dad, who is Jesus Christ? And he looked at me and goes, he's the son of God, Glenn. <laughs> and I was kind of like, good answer. But I pushed. And I said, Dad, the demons say that. The demons know that. What's the difference? My dad was bigger than me. I was a little worried. But it was serious. He took it to heart. He listened to what I had to say. He didn't like it, but he listened to what I had to say. Friends, if, listen, how about this thought? If Jesus will say that to them, what do you think he's going to say to those who willingly follow them and support them and defend them? I, I often have, I can't tell you many times people say to me, and they do because I'm a pastor and I'm a bit outspoken, go figure. You know, they'll say something like, you know, I don't like it when pastors or Christians say that someone else is a false teacher or that their theology is a bit off base. I have family members and relatives who say that to me. Friends, my answer to that is very simple. Heaven and hell, your eternal destiny are at stake. I don't know. Only the Holy Spirit of God knows in your heart where you stand with God today. So now I think we're ready to unpack this great parable, and we'll do that as we close. It's great, and it's extremely important because it's about every one of us in this room here today who say that we're Christians. He's just dealt with the religious dudes. Now he's going to deal with all of us. Every one of us in this room he's going to deal with. And so with the verse back up there, you'll see that this, as Jesus begins this parable, he declares that everyone who has heard what he has been preaching and does, what he says Which they cannot do without faith and trust in Him alone for their salvation, they will be wise. They will be wise. Not a little, but they will be wise. Why? Because they are building their lives, their house, on the rock, who is Jesus. I I truly love this parable a lot. (laughs) Really, I do. I've loved it most of my life. And one of the reasons for that is my dad, again, he was a general contractor, he was a builder. And uh, he worked for 25 years for Cloak Construction in Toronto. I worked four summers in a row for my dad, which was painful. It's one of the reasons why I decided to grow up and wear a suit and tie. Uh, it was hard work. But I loved it because what I learned working for my dad, who eventually went on to become a leading building inspector of the city of Toronto, is I learned a couple things. What hard work really looks like? Every day up at 6, at the house, 6.30, on the job site, slugging it, working every day. But I also learned how to build a good house. My dad was demanding, and when he went to work for the city of Toronto, it was like building code, right? Really important stuff. It's got to be built right. It's a little legalistic, maybe a little moralistic, but I really appreciated that and my father's approach to that. So let's read the rest of the parable, and then we'll just comment on it. It says this, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great, great was the fall of it. So like we've seen uh, now for weeks, there is this contrast between two things, right? Right? Uh, two things. Constantly, there's this contrast going on. Whether two gates, two paths, two ways, two destinies, well, now we have two builders, two houses, two foundations, and again, two destinies. We have two builders. One is wise, one's a fool. Hebrew word again is, I won't say it. But the contrast here is very simple, yet very profound. It's not between people who have heard the Word of God, have heard the Gospel, and those who have not. Jesus clearly wants us to understand this is about people who hear and do what He says, who literally receive Him as the Savior, as the Word of God, and now are doing what He does. Really, or more importantly, those who obey and those who won't. And there are Christians in that. Christians who have come to faith in Christ, but they're struggling with obeying Him. They just won't. Now, the scary part again here is this comparison is between two builders who are Christians. The picture he wants us to see on the surface, on the exterior, is this. They look exactly like the same. You can't tell them apart. They're, they're virtually the same. The, the roof, the walls, the color of the buildings, the windows, you know, it's like those, you know, some communities that are built, and like, they all look the same, right? Okay, some of the different paint, stuff like that, they're basically tract houses. They look identical on the outside from the ex- exterior, except one thing, the one thing that you cannot see. What's underground? The foundation. It's the one thing. So when it comes to their faith, for which this story is a metaphor, they both look like, talk like, walk like Christians. They go to church. They go to small group. They serve. They go to Bible studies. They apparently give, although most of us in the church don't know who does and who doesn't, right? But they apparently give and do all these things like every other Christian They serve in the church, and as far as appearance goes, they're exactly the same. They think they are saved, and we believe they are. Who's to know? Who's to know? Well, clearly, (laughs) clearly, Jesus does. And one is not what they think they are. Uh, The similarities in the story are that both are builders, Both are building their lives, but the grace contracts, which will be revealed when the flood, when the storm comes in their lives, is their foundation. So let's look at the foundations for a second, just for a second to put this together. One of them hears what Jesus has to say about salvation and promise of heaven and all of that, and they're like, I'm in. (laughs) That is great. I believe in Jesus. believe what he had to say. I've got fire insurance. Now I'm just going to go build my house on my own. I'll just start building, right? Let's get going. He finds a lot. He throws down a small six-inch concrete pad on top of some dirt, right? Because you got to have it level at least, right, to get started. And he starts to build. I mean, it, he's gone. He's, look, look at him go. People are looking at him going, look at him go. The guy's amazing. It seems like the smart thing to do, isn't it? To get going and move. Jesus is saying that's foolish, actually. So now we know the other builder we know that he dug a hole. Now, Matthew's gospel doesn't tell us, but look what Luke adds to the story. Jesus again says, everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation. And again, I know growing up in Toronto that when we built houses, that they all had basements. They, they all had, you know, basements. Some had, you know, just a little bit of a window above ground, but they all had basements. And there was concrete around the exterior, and there was cinder block, and then brick on the outside. It was amazing the way the homes were being built. So this man heard what Jesus had to say, took it to heart, and he thought to himself this. Before I go chasing after my dreams in life, or any further in my dreams in my life, I'd better, I'd better get to know this Jesus better. I'd better get to know him better get closer to him, so that I will be wise like him as I build my life, as I build my house. So he starts digging. Now look, he starts digging, and his neighbor has already like got the first floor framed, right? He's already that far along, and this guy's digging dirt, He's going down and digging down before you go up. His neighbor already has his walls up, and he's spending time and money to dig and dig and dig. Finally, he hits bedrock. He pours in his concrete forms with rebar firmly attached to the rock foundation, and now, now he's ready to build his house. His neighbor's on his second floor, right? Just keeps moving along remember when dad would visit uh, us and we were looking to buy a home in the Langley area, we'd go driving around and dad would sit in the passenger seat and I'd be driving around and all the time we were driving around in Langley, dad would be going, Pfft, wow, <laughs> yeah, what is that? And he'd be looking at building sites where they were putting up new homes and I'd be going, dad, dad, what's, what's, why are you being so critical? He goes, Glenn, th- th- those wouldn't pass code in Ontario. This things going up really fast, really cheaply. Many, many years ago, I, I, had a, uh, I was a consultant in business, and I, and I had a, a client, and they were custom home builders in Langley, and uh, one of the, the reasons why they hired me is because they were, they were having a problem getting new clients because they believed in building good quality homes. But there were a lot of people in the Lower Mainland and the Fraser Valley who were just like, yeah. So customers would come and they would say, well, look, our budget is $600,000. This is back in the day, right? To buy the lot and build the house. Today, not so much. But in those days, that would be it. And, and uh, my, my friend who I was consulting for, I mean, his challenge was the other builders would say, oh, for $600,000, no problem. On this lot, I can give you 4,000 square feet with all the bells and whistles. Woo! And my friend, my client would say, no, no, actually, no, I, I can't do that. Uh, I could build you a 2,650-square-foot home that's two-by-six two construction, is fully sealed, well-insulated, you know, rain shield, it, 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 you know, you won't need Mike Holmes in five years to fix it. Every part of our lives, we're like that. We buy into the idea, build quick, build cheap, give me what I want, more is better, right? No, no, it's not. When all is said and done, the two builders end up with two homes, sitting side by side, looking on the surface and the exterior like equally solid great homes. But then look what happens. Look what happens in this story. Both homes, Christian, hear me, both homes get hit by the storm. One's one's not worse on the other home. They both get hit with a severe storm. Go figure. Come home from Mexico? Wow. Wow think about Irma, think about tsunami in Japan a few years ago. These are major storms. So I want you to see the storms in two ways. First of all, Jesus is talking about one, but primarily, but there's another, and that is the storms in life. Do you think for a moment that the wise guy who started building deep had no struggles, had no storms? I mean, do do, do you not think he was maybe being a little ridiculed by by some of the other Christians in, in that day who were or in the parable in the story that are kind of like going, well, what, a, what a numbskull. <laughs> like, you know, like, you know, so, you, know like, like you could have all you could have three garages, you could be building this big, beautiful house. What are you doing, digging a ditch? You know, what are you doing that? I mean that's a storm criticism. You know, you're oh you're so goody two shoes, you're such a good Christian, you know, yeah, you're so righteous. And th- those are storms that come to us, but there are others, aren't there? There's sickness. There's financial loss. There's relationship breakups. There are train wrecks that happen in our lives. And the moral of this story is those are storms. It's not a matter of if but when they're going to come into your life. They come. They happen. The point of the story is, the point of the parable, the point of what Jesus' heart is, is if you have me, I'm there in the storm with you. I will hold you up. These things won't mean the same to you. Because you have me. But he's actually speaking about the great storm. And this is where it gets very serious. He's talking about the great storm, the storm that one day all of us in this room will face. And it's the great storm of God's judgment. Every single human being on this planet today, every one of you in this room today, will stand before him one day. That's what the scripture teaches us, that's what we believe. And the reality is, I mean, it's why Jesus said a few verses earlier in chapter 7, verse 15, beware, guys. He also talked about enter in through the narrow gate. He he wants us to enter into his peace and his protection and his salvation. And he says beware. And the reality is one day, see the words again, many, Jesus said, will stand before his judgment seat and the storm will overcome them. It just will wash over and destroy them. There will be destruction. On the other hand, Christian, if that's you here today, what you can hope to see is this. That storm will come for you too. But one thing will be very different. Jesus Christ will be standing there right beside you with his arm around you, his yoke around you. And he will say, Father not this one. He, she, is mine. I took the storm. I took the storm for them on the cross and in their place on that day. Remember, this one is mine. I mentioned that there's similarities between Proverbs and parables. Let me give you a couple of Proverbs in closing. Proverbs chapter 1, verses 7 to 9 says this, and I think it might be a little bit more meaningful now that we've heard this parable explained, preached, read. Solomon wrote, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fear is not in that verse meaning scared, although it's about reverence for God's holiness and His righteousness having clear reverence for him. Fools, look at this, despise this kind of wisdom and instruction. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. And then in verse 23, I want you to hear this as the words of Jesus, because it is his spirit. He is the spirit of wisdom. He is wisdom incarnate who is giving these words to Solomon when he says this. If you turn at my reproof, if you hear these things that I am preaching to you, and you turn from your sin and turn to me, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will give my spirit to you. I will come in and sup with you. I will save you. And I will make my words known to you. Any storms? What kind of house are you building? Friend, let me encourage you today. Dig deep. Build your house on the solid rock. It's the only hope that I have. It's the only hope that you have. Pray with me, would you?